Getting Better Acquainted isn't just happening as a podcast. It's also going out in half-hour edits on Resonance FM. Those are shows selected from the first 100 episodes, edited down to half-hour tasty morsels of conversation that go out at 7.30 on a Thursday and 10 o'clock on a Friday on Resonance 104.4 FM. If you're in London, you may be able to get that on your radio dial. If you're outside of London, you can get that online by going to the Resonance FM website. The manner of communication of whatever the thing is communicating is, in fact, just as crucial as what it's communicating and, and, and to certain extent becomes part of what it's communicating. Right. We didn't live in the the age in which you're living now where you can just bring a microphone or a camera or whatever into someone's yeah. living room and just do your own thing. You Films cost money and you have to get the money from somewhere and at that point where you got the money from was the government or industry to make these sorts of films. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Today we're getting better acquainted with Patrick. Hello, Patrick. Hi. <laughs> I still haven't managed. I've done loads of these. And I still have not managed to stop kind of laughing at the unnaturalness of the intro moment when I sort of say hello to somebody I've already been speaking to. Not a problem. <laughs> and today I'm talking to Patrick in his house, which might mean that I think there's a next door neighbour that's doing some drilling so you might hear but we assume that's what it is yeah, we assume. there might be some more sinister explanation there could indeed as far as we know yeah so that's what that sound is and you were saying to me just before we started that you've conducted a lot of interviews and you've had a few interviews yeah is that I, right? I wouldn't or say I've conducted a lot. a lot of but I've conducted a fair number I've done some oral history interviews so this is through work so yeah. it's talking to people about their careers essentially so I've, I've done interviews a bit like this but where I'm asking people to talk me through their career. I've done some video interviews, where which are usually for use on DVD extras and that sort yeah. of thing. Your dad being one of the people. Well, that's an interesting interviews. thing. Yeah. You're the first guest yes. that I've had on my show who's interviewed another member, okay. like another person yeah. who's been on the show. And I've also in interviewed your dad on stage as well. That's right. It's a very different type of setting. And so I've done a number of those sort of on-stage interviews. Well, it's a slightly theatrical occasion, I suppose. Yeah. And it's circumscribed in terms of time and so on. So they're all slightly different disciplines. And obviously the thing that's interesting about interviews is that they're all different dynamics between the interviewer and the interviewee. Yeah. Sometimes, it, as I'm sure you know better than I, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Hopefully, generally, it works in this show. And even when things don't entirely click between the yeah. interviewer and the interviewee, though... I still think sometimes that can work as well, you know, if there's something slightly wrong about the way it works. Sometimes that doesn't... That maybe it, works, nice, maybe yeah. it sometimes works well, for the listener, but not, yeah. for, not for either of the people Well, uh, that's involved. right, that's right. I mean, and I guess when I'm doing these shows, I've, I've, I've always got part of my mind thinking yeah. about the listener, and hopefully, yeah. Yeah. hopefully they enjoy the show even when I don't click with people, and hopefully I will click with you. We will see. It's I guess probably, people can uh, decide. It's probably risky to say that, anyway. <laughs> I like, I like high-risk high risk strategy. Yeah. That can sometimes be the way I go. Yeah. So the first person who's interviewed somebody else who's been on the show, one of the things you were saying about interviews, though, is that you've interviewed people and you've been interviewed in the context of your work. Yes. And correct. this is about you. Yes. 
it's the first time I've ever been interviewed about myself. I'm sure most people go through life without being interviewed about Yeah, themselves. I guess so. So that's pretty normal. Um, so it's not through lack of egocentricity on my part. <laughs> Quite the opposite, I suspect. Just lack of opportunity. I don't know what the results of that will be. Well, it's an interesting thing. This is the case for a lot of people who come on the show. Is if they haven't ever sort of done an interview sort of thing before themselves, about themselves... You have, a, I guess, an advantage or a disadvantage, I don't know, in that you've done it yourself. I don't know, because uh, I suppose the interviewing I've done, to greater or lesser extent, has been professional, if you want to put it that way. Yeah. Although although I don't interview for a living, it's an extension of my... My job is not to do that, but it's yeah. an extension of my job. It's always been done in professional contexts, whereas this is being done in a non-professional yeah. context. I suppose it's kind of a kind of a sideline profession for you perhaps it is I guess um, I hope it I hope it will become yeah I guess I don't know I don't know if I want to be a professional you know if I'm quite happy to have it be my means of uh, making money that would be good but uh, I don't occupation I guess something that (laughs) occupies my time I I guess I kind of feel more comfortable with that as an idea but I like the way that podcasts are free and they kind of outside completely it feels like making them at the moment Mm. for me it's kind of completely outside the world of commerce and art yes. and all that thing. It's just yes. this thing I do and yes. I can do it and I don't have to sort of wait for to be allowed in. Yeah. It, but it's a strange thing. It's it's sort of, it's opened a lot more doors th- than banging on the door ever did. Mm. It's a funny one. Mm. So the first question that I ask people is, how do you know me? Well, I know you through your dad, in fact, Peter yeah. McRing, uh, who, as I mentioned or alluded to earlier, I know through... My work. I work at the, the British Film Institute. I work at the archive of the VFI, and we hold a lot of films from the tradition of filmmaking that your dad was involved in, yeah. which was sort of documentary and industrial film, I suppose you could say. Um, in fact, we hold most of the films that he himself made, and so I, I met him through the work that we've done in relation to, to those films and that type of work I, yeah. and I can't remember when I first met you but I suspected it was might have been at one of the public yeah, it might events have been. that we did in relation to either your dad's films or yeah. films of his colleagues I think Most it might have been when you were interviewing him the first time on stage I think the first really? time I think I might have met you after you'd interviewed after I'd watched you interviewing okay. my father yeah. so that would have been about five years ago I suspect I guess so yeah because um, I've been to ever since he's been involved with you I've yes. been to the shows like okay. the public yeah. things of them yeah I've, so, I've enjoyed I've enjoyed that a lot actually so anyway so I've, I've met you probably on half a dozen occasions I yeah suppose. not very many times yeah maybe once a year or so at these sorts of events yeah sort of often there's been canapes going around yeah and, there has which is not and, I, mean, I hasten to stress not my sort of lifestyle at all no really. it's not yours and it's not mine so I don't really go in for that kind of thing at yeah. all yeah. but it happens it happens and um, it just so happens that when it does happen we tend we've indeed. been in the same room indeed with indeed. so so that's roughly speaking how we know each other but neither of us remembers exactly no I don't when, remember the moment but that's the general context and the second question I ask, which we've sort of touched on already, is what do you do now? Well, as I said earlier, work and family, I yeah. suppose, are... Well, there are th- most people, I think there's three main aspects to their life. There's their work life, if they're lucky enough to have a work life. There's yeah. their family life, if they're lucky enough to have family. I mean, both of those things can be unlucky, of course, but yeah. they're lucky for most people, certainly for me. And then there's their their personal life yeah their interests if you like yeah so in terms of my work life I work at the as I said the British Film Institute in the BFI, BFI. Archive, yeah. BFI a curator there 
and that's a massive aspect of my life and yeah. my psyche and so on in terms of family my family are actually away at the moment which is why we're in a, a unusually quiet house yeah, it's normally it's, very very noisy it's, here but it's a family house it's a family house you know, so you, you I'm come married, into this room and yeah. You, yeah, you know it's, there's a family that lives here that's, it's nice yeah yeah. Uh, it's certainly a lot messier than this usually so I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm married I've got two children they they just this morning went up to, to Scotland with my wife to their grandparents and that is a massive part of my life and then the other side of my life as I said is if you like my inner life my interests so what do you do now in your inner life? Which is uh, a strange course, question to yeah. ask. Um, it seems <laughs> Sounds like a bit dodgy, one. actually, yeah. Um, <laughs> inner life. Well, I mean, I think one of the, 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 the other key point, I suppose, about, again, I assume I'm not unusual in this, is that the divisions between these three things, maybe there's more things in other people's lives, but there isn't much more to me than those three things. Uh, I think that, broadly speaking, yeah. people fall, will have an element of at least one of those yeah. three things in yeah. their lives. yeah. They're quite, they're, they're quite important elements yeah. to people generally. Yeah, I think. yeah. Um, and I think in a lot of people's cases, there is a certain bleed between those. Oh, absolutely. To question between those three things. So they're all those. So the work and family aspects are very, very much features of my inner life. So to answer your question. Yeah. So my inner life is, you know, to a certain extent dominated by family and by work interests, which to do have to do with with. Film and, film and TV which is you know big personal interest yeah. always has been I think are you would you say you're lucky enough to be one of these people who can combine your interests with your employment uh, the one word answer would be yes right uh, it's more much, complicated it's more complicated, complicated yeah. and there are disadvantages to that as well yeah in terms of lack of sort of compartmentalisation in yes. life and the sort of obsessiveness yeah, that goes absolutely. with mm-hmm. pursuing your interests within a work context and then of course in all workplaces there are you know all sorts of complications to do with you know, resources time office politics etc etc yeah. blah 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 that's all very normal stuff um, but the simple answer is yes of course because you know most I assume most people in the world yeah. if they're lucky enough to work for a living at all for them it's purely a matter of economics mm. and earning enough money to keep a roof over their heads and get some food on the table. So the fact that it's more than that to yeah. me, I, I, you know, I have to continue to remind myself that I am ex- extremely lucky in that, even though, as I said, there are downsides as well. No, no, I mean, I think that's a fair point. And I think many of us, I mean, even though only you know I'm very lucky to be able to work part-time and pursue yeah. the things that I yeah. love and so I have to continually remind myself of that as I slog through the things that take time you know yeah. like, as I'm editing these podcasts yeah. for hour upon hour I have yeah. to remember that, that I'm really lucky to be able to do yeah. that and to be yeah. able to, and I guess though you know you're getting to pursue something that you're I mean when did you get interested in film as a kid yeah I always had a huge interest and through university I didn't study at, at university at undergraduate level, but through university it was, a, you know, it was a passion of mine, particularly sort of older film, film yeah. from sort of non, non-current filmmaking. Um, so was it film, like the, the film experience, the light um, in the cinema that, that, that um, captured you, or was it the films themselves? Both. There yeah. is a romance in it, and I would say, in terms of my personality, I, I have 
side of my personality that's quite romantic in that sense of the word that you're alluding to and another side of my personality that is very sort of analytical and those two right. things are in a sort of slightly unstable <laughs> combination if you like yeah um, and so yeah there's certainly a romantic uh, attraction to that so yeah and then I, I after I'd finished my degree I, I didn't really know what I was going to do with my life and was unemployed for a while and did some part-time work and so on and, and then saw an advert one day f- in Sight Sound actually for an MA in film archiving which was a profession I'd never heard of this is a very very long time ago yeah. University of East Anglia so I applied to go to do that course and perhaps surprisingly got on it and as they say the rest is it's history yeah it's film history yeah do you remember the first film that you remember existing you know the first film you uh, I probably remember some of my early cinema going experiences this would be in the I was born in 1972 so this would be in the presumably mid 70s um, I certainly recollect seeing some Disney films Okay. they used to Disney this is obviously in the days before home video let alone DVD. Yeah. So Disney used to periodically re-release their feature films into right. cinemas. So I, I remember seeing The Jungle Book, which I, th- I think The Jungle Book originally came out in about 1967. So this must have been a re-release in sort of 75 or something. I remember seeing that in the cinema. But, you know, also in those days, you're probably just about old enough to remember, but somebody a bit younger than you probably wouldn't, that the, the, the days when black and white films old, older films old classic Hollywood classic films used to be shown on TV ah, all yeah. the time yeah, yeah. Um, we only had three TV channels in those days yeah um, that's right so BBC2 particularly um, you would see yeah every Sunday Saturday Sunday afternoon there'd always be black and white films classic classic yeah, Hollywood yeah. films and so that was certainly part of my childhood and you were and you were attracted to the old films rather yes. than the new. It's interesting. I think so. Yeah, I've always been because to get back to your original question that I didn't answer several questions ago about about my world, and to not sort of uh, to break down the the bleed between the the work side and the other side. History of all kinds has always been a big. Okay. I hate the word passion. It just seems terribly. It sounds awfully sort of cliche, but unfortunately, there's no one's no yeah. ever come up with a good alternative. Yeah. If, you, if somebody says I have a passion for history, it sounds like they're they're filling in a job application or something. Yeah, it does. But, but it, the word still means something. The, it's just it how does. Do we, it's, how just, do we, it's become yeah. horribly hackneyed because yeah, it was right. overused in that very inauthentic way. However, I have a passion for history, so as I to get back to the bleed between work and inner life, I, I as I sort of pursued the film side and the film archiving side particularly, I became much more interested in, in non-fiction film because yeah. of because it combines the passion to to reuse that awful word for film with the passion for for history. Right, and and that's been your become your speciality. With yes, I, I mean I, I specifically work with non-fiction film. That's 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 the work that I do it's not the only type of film I'm interested in no. but in terms of my work it's uh, it's what I focus on and I have a great interest in it and as I say it combines the interest in film in terms of, of being a type of technology and a form of expression or communication or art if you want to use that phrase which it sometimes is and sometimes it's not with film as a as a document of historical events 
yeah. economics, society, history, etc., etc. So what what makes something art? I mean, and, and what makes something not art? If you are looking at these non-fiction films and you're and you you see that some of them have you could call art and yeah. some of them you couldn't call art. Yeah. What, what what is that? What is that something? Firstly, I don't think it's necessarily that important whether mm-hmm. it's art or not. Yeah, yeah. It, sometimes something that is art can be less important than something that isn't. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, clearly, art, art is a subjective term yeah. to apply to anything. Uh, I don't know, actually. It's, <laughs> I don't have a very good answer to that. It's, no, that's okay. Uh, it has, I suppose it has to do with... I can only answer it really... And this is getting away from my job, just into yeah. more into the inner world stuff. But yeah. I suppose, in terms of my personal experience of something as being artistic or inartistic, it has to do with the relationship of content to form, okay. if you like. Yeah. So, the manner of communication of whatever the thing is communicating is, in fact, just as crucial as what it's communicating. And, and, and to a certain extent becomes part of what it's communicating right does that answer the question so at all non- slightly abstract answer to a slightly abstract question so non-fiction becomes well if somebody sets uh, like okay example of non-art yeah. CCTV camera yeah it could be most of the time it isn't but it could occasionally be something important it could document an important event yeah absolutely and at some point in the future some CCTV footage will be looked upon as an important historical yeah. document it certainly isn't art because there's no intention of communication no that's all. right it's simply a recording methodology as carried out through a particular device it's, a, it's, it's something that you could make into art if you take it and you arrange it and you present it you, you can take some of, the, some of the images can yeah. be turned into art that's right CCTV, but the actual CCTV footage, in footage as such yeah. is inartistic I agree with that whereas in the field of non-fiction a documentary which has been constructed to one degree or another and obviously there's all sorts of generally fairly boring theoretical debates yeah. about what is a documentary and what isn't and you know how much construction is permitted and so on but a documentary does imply some degree of choice on the part of those making it as, yeah. as to number one which images they shoot number two which images they include in their final yeah. edit and in what order sure. and what other pieces of form they bring into play whether that's music commentary or what, as I say it's the relationship between form and subject that causes something to be asked because the course, films yeah sorry because the films that you look at yes. some of the films that you've been looking at recently yeah. are films that have a very simple public yes needs like interest yes. message yes that are designed to be communicated yeah. by the government or by Industry companies or whatever yeah yes yeah, yeah. To directly to the cu- yes. to the public, so yes. they were films that were designed to be seen. Would it have been before or in between the feature films? Sometimes, or seen non-theatrically. Oh, on the, the world of sixteen millimeter, or eventually on television. Yeah. Uh, sometimes, yeah. Yeah. So I guess what you're leading to is is the assumption that those things aren't art. Therefore, well, I don't think. I, I, I think they are. are. I mean, I, 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 I don't. Well, I, that as, kind I, of as I said, I don't go. I don't go. Around, I mean, you you ask the question about art and non art, and it's not particularly something I think about that much. No, 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 absolutely. But also, I, I, in my terms of my own personal artistic taste, I've on the whole, I veer towards things that are a bit more not towards high art, right. if you like, but towards certainly things that are kind of quite, quite sort of classical in form rather than very. 
kind of expressionist or edgy or postmodern or whatever. Yeah. I perfectly, I perfectly respect all those things. But just you've got uh, Johnny Cash books on your bookcases. I have Johnny Cash. And I love country you've western got, music. You've got a banjo. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, I mean, I get it. I mean, yeah. 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 You've got it in one there. Country and western music to me, it's not high art. I don't think you could compare. It would be pointless to even start to compare a, a great country western song with a great symphony by Mahler or whatever. Oh, I'd like to try. Well, yeah, you try by all means, but <laughs> it's um, an impossible journey. I don't it's, know, really. uh, but but the point Apple's is, I like, I like I like I like stuff that is is simple and eloquent and well constructed and can be very removing actually, but not not isn't necessarily particularly clever. Mm -hmm. like. And and a lot of the films that you're describing are in that category. Some of them are good and some of them are bad. But, I, I mean, I wouldn't go around trying to proclaim them as high art, but I would say some of them have a... There are varying degrees of artistry mm -hmm. in their construction. And, actually, I, I really love it when I see a film that's in that sort of tradition, in that sort of vein of communication, which has, has a lot of artistry in its construction, but it's sort of not overt, mm. in the same way that I love a great country-western song. That makes sense. I'm just elaborating really on that. I think you've already got. The I mean, country and western. Yeah. There are some parallels yeah. as well. I mean, country and western is kind of folk yeah. uh, traditions yes. and folk art, but also quite commercial as well. Absolutely, you know. that's true as well. Yeah. And and that's sort of how those public interest films yeah. kind of arose. They yes. kind of are of the the people who are yes. down. A lot of them are actually the people, the miners and stuff yeah. down the mines. It's only the films your dad made. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, so I guess that's a that's a thing to say. I guess, I mean, how did you come across my dad, and why did why is he involved with yeah, your life? Yeah, yeah, okay. I, I can tell you the first time I ever encountered your dad's name, it was quite a number of years. I mean, I must have known your dad at least five years now. So mm -hmm. this would be before then. This must be me pushing ten years ago. I I was. It was when we first started colleagues and I first started seriously looking at the National Cardboards films for listeners to this who, who aren't, haven't listened to all of your interviews. Yes. Your dad spent many of his working years uh, either directly employed or working under commission for the National Cardboard making films for them. And so your dad's name came up quite a lot. He was surprised when I told him, I'm pretty sure it's the case, that he made more films for the National Cardboard as a director than any other individual. Interesting. The reason for that is I think he works there longer than anyone else. Yeah. Although he, 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 his yeah, length of service wasn't absolutely continuous, yeah. but in total he worked there longer than anyone else. So he, 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 I remember when I said this to the, him, he counted with various names of other people who he assumed had made more films than him, but I don't think any of them had been there quite as long okay. as a director. Anyway, so I do remember seeing, sitting in a viewing theatre looking at a lot of these films with a colleague of mine, and seeing a couple of films, you've seen one of them called Nobody's Face. Yep. You remember that one? Which is a sort of training film that's about how not to do it, essentially. Yep. And I was kind of quite intrigued by this, but it's not a brilliant film. I don't think your dad would say it was either. In fact, he probably particularly wouldn't say that he it was. Would but um, be critical. But, and perhaps rightly to some extent. However, there is, I, I immediately thought this is interesting. There's something slightly negative <laughs> about this film which is um, at odds with with a lot of the films which are very sort of exhortative and, and kind of very cheery and positive right. which I like as well I've always actually been very interested in terms of my my interest in history and industrial history particularly very interested in the history of the coal industry as such 
and and the 1960s in in the coal industry was quite people often forget this because they think about the 1980s as the great turbulent period in coal mining which mm. of course had its denouement in the miners' strike, which effectively you know, hastened the demise of the whole industry. But actually the 60s was quite a turbulent period in some ways, not through industrial action, but just through a lot of pet closures and, and just a lot of economic pressures on the industry. And that was reflected in this. This is quite a simple 15-minute film. I was kind of quite interested, so I kind of took a mental note of the, the director's name, Peter Pickering, and saw another film of his that had a... a which he made a few years later, which is called Who's Driving, which I really like. You probably haven't seen that one. But it's a sort of sequel or a sort of transposition of the same theme into a, into a nobody's face is set underground, Who's Driving is set above ground, oh, in it? the colliery office, That's interesting. So it's more the managerial level. Anyway, I was quite intrigued by this. I looked at his filmography and I saw that he had directed his first film in 1942. <laughs> And I assumed he must have been at least in his mid-twenties by that time. Yeah. And it turned out that he wasn't, actually. Yeah. He was 17, I think, when he made his That's first right. film. It was a one-minute film, I think. But I assumed when I saw that credit, well, he must have been at least in his mid-twenties by then, maybe in his thirties. This guy can't possibly be alive any longer. Then somebody... This is getting very involved. You might I don't mind. I don't think you might so. want to cut this for reasons of, of um, excessive convolution. Well, but, we got but, an hour, you know. Okay. I, um, <laughs> <laughs> dangerous thing to say... Somebody who works for a, who at the time worked for another organisation who were doing a research project into the history of cine magazines. So, in other words, films sent into cinemas, which yeah. were had a sort of magazine format, a bit like newsreels, but but more sort of topical interest rather than straight news. One of the key ones being Mining Review, which your dad shot many dozens of yeah. stories for, if not hundreds of stories. For. Almost like a magazine shot, kind of like a newsreel in its style, but ten minutes film that usually consisted of two or three or four separate little little stories of two or three minutes each, yeah. filmed somewhere in one of the coal fields of Britain. So your dad spent much of his working career, you know, shooting out of London to Northumberland yeah. or Scotland or South Wales or, you know, the East Midlands or wherever. No, you know, filming down the mines. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, filming down the mines or in coal mining communities. So she did a project looking at those films in the context of cine magazines, and she, through I think a chain of contacts, uh, came upon your dad, and then passed his contact details to me. Okay. And then I, when I was putting on a season of films, which was looking at the earlier documentary movement, the thirties and forties right. documentary movement, which is which has a much higher reputation than the films from the period your dad was working in. I put together a show that was trying to look at the continuation of that tradition into the post-war period. And so I thought, well, I've got this guy's address and I'd seen one of his films that I thought might, might work in that context, not one of the ones that I've mentioned. And so I wrote to him. And it turned out that he was coming to some of the other films in the season. So I, the first time I met him, in fact, was about two minutes before we went into the theatre to, to show the films, immediately after which he was up on stage with another director of the period oh, wow. being interviewed. And then a couple of months later, we were doing a DVD, BFI was doing a DVD based around the same themes, and we went and interviewed a few people who had known that earlier generation of filmmakers. As you know, your dad started his life in film working for Paul Rother, who yeah. most of your listeners won't know, but anyone who is listening who knows their documentary film history will know that he was at one time a very major figure in, in world documentary really not just British documentary 
So why we, why was yeah. he? What was his significance? I mean, because I'm told that, but I don't ever know why. Yeah. Well, how much of a history lesson do you want on the British documentary movement? As much as you want to tell. I'll try to keep it brief. <laughs> um, in the 30s and early 40s, there was this thing called, or it called itself, slightly pretentiously, the British documentary movement, which was motivated by the desire to utilise film as both a creative medium, so back to the art word again, putting films together in a artistically satisfying way, but also to use it as a social tool. This, of course, was before television, before TV news reporting, the electronic news gathering, any of that sort of stuff. And they specifically wanted to make non-fiction films because they felt that those were essentially superior to fiction film as a, as a form and, and socially superior in terms of their sort of utility to society. So there are a number of key filmmakers around at the time. And Paul Rother, most of this movement is generally associated with John Grierson, who was the sort of right, founding it. figure and a sort of slightly stern, sort of Calvinist charismatic but quite divisive for character had a lot of protégés if you like and Rother was never really one of his protégés and kind of was slightly veered off to left field and did his own thing and made films some of which don't work at all getting back to, to what you were saying before possibly before we were on mic about, about how sometimes interviews don't work but can still be interesting some yeah. of his films don't work and are interesting some of them do work and are okay. interesting he was very influenced by Soviet cutting techniques the theory of montage which is about creating associations in the viewer's mind through through your cutting method of cutting, yeah. often, often quite fast cutting. And one of the things that I find fascinating about his films is that I said before that in my personality is a sort of possible conflict or tension between the sort of romantic side of my personality and the analytical side. Mm-hmm. In his case, I think there was a very definite conflict between the sort of cerebral side and the the passionate side, if you like. I don't. You've probably not seen any of his films. No, I have. No, you should ask your dad to show you sometime. Um, he will probably be. proceed them with some critical remarks. But Rotha was a was a, a distinctive character within that movement for a while. He was also a pioneering film critic. He he was one of the first in Britain, one of the first people to write a history of film. It's up there somewhere. Uh, where is it? Can't find it now. Yeah, see that big that big thick book on the on the top left shelf, okay. the right of the top left shelf, yeah. under the train, the film till now, by okay. Paul Rother. That's a later edition. That's a nineteen sixties edition. I think I think the first one might have been as early as nineteen twenty nine. It was one of the first attempts to write an actual history of film in this country. Um, he was also a very self destructive character, as okay. your dad will know. And actually, not that long after your dad was working. And his, his career sort of fell apart. He was overspending on his films, and people were okay. leaving him, and it all kind of fell to pieces. Really, he was he was, he was confrontational and sort of self-destructive. And okay. his, actually, his, his later decades really were very tragic in some ways because he lived in, in poverty and um, was you know had alcohol problems and so on. So, oh. but anyway, he, he kind of an interesting, char- a flawed but interesting character. I can't remember what led down. So, Rafa represented the documentary film movement to a certain extent he represented the the cutting edge of the documentary right. film movement in terms of being 
there's a lot of debate about how socially radical they were, and a lot of people accuse them of kind of posing as very left-wing, but actually making ultimately quite establishment-friendly sort of films. Mm-hmm. They could all potentially be accused of that. I don't entirely agree with that analysis because I didn't. I don't think they had very much of an alternative to that. They didn't live in the the age in which you're living now, where you can just bring a microphone or a camera or whatever into someone's yeah. living room and just do your own thing. You films cost money, and you had to get the money from somewhere. And at that point, where you got the money from was the government or industry to make these sorts of films, or you went into the commercial film industry, in which you wouldn't be making these sorts of films at, at all. all. So I'm, I, you know, and I'm always very interested. And, and actually, this is one of the things to get it back to your your dad. That has always interested me about his career and the career of his careers of his generation. At that point, the kind of fervor had, had gone out of the documentary film movement, and these films made for government, industry, or whatever, had become much more professionalized in some ways, but also much more, in a way, co-opted to the establishment. There was much okay. less opportunity to be like a Rother, who, who, as I was wanted to go on to say a minute ago but then sort of lost my yeah. thread who, who was slightly pushing the envelope in terms yeah. of of wanting to be quite as socially radical as he could get away with in his films in terms of saying something strong about society right. and where it's come from and where it's going and essentially arguing for a, a more social democratic society by the time your dad was actually making films as a director you know the social democratic society such as it was was already here and so, and, and and films like the ones he was working on were were part of that setup. And somebody like Rotha couldn't really fit into that. Yeah. Um, strangely enough, he'd been his films have been arguing for a much more social democratic society. But but actually, as a, as a he was too much of an individualist and a maverick to be able to 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 fit within it. You yeah. see what I mean? Your dad's generation had to do that. And so, and that's one of the reasons that they're films have been much less seriously taken by critics and historians because they are, they are more consensual and more and more conformist okay. essentially it's not to say the people as individuals were yeah. so I'd be, I mean it's a, it's a very interesting question in my mind is if your dad had been say 15-20 years older and had been part of the 30s generation which for example Donald Alexander who who you know your dad worked for at the Data Films and who was later on the National Cardboard mm-hmm. had been part of that generation. If your dad had been part of that generation, I wonder... What know, he would have made. What he would have made. It would have been different. And something that certainly intrigues me, as I say, I don't think your dad is a great filmmaker and he, I don't think he thinks that either. I'm sure he doesn't think that. There's some of his films that I like very much. Some of them are... I like... Some of them I think are, have artistic merit. Not high art merit, but have artistic merit. Uh, you've seen his film Miners, for instance, haven't you? Which yeah. is the one that was filmed in the seventies, which with a lot of underground. Shooting. That's right. But, yeah, yeah. Which I think is a, it's a very unpretentious, simple but a great little film. I think, and and I like the things like Nobody's Face and so on. But others of his films, I enjoy them. I find them interesting in social documents. I think they're well made, but I wouldn't particularly put them into into an artistic category at all. And some some of the films he made are just just sort of mediocre and and you know not particularly interesting at all. Yeah. So it's, to me, that's in a way a more interesting career. It's it's particularly knowing him, um, yeah. you know, knowing him as a personality off screen through these connections that I mentioned earlier, yeah. and, and I've come to know him sort of fairly well in the last five years or so. That's right. Yeah. Seeing the, you know, he's obviously he's a very artistic personality yeah. actually, and that only fleetingly comes out in the films, and I find that in some ways just as interesting or, or almost more interesting than 
Arotha, who has the opportunity for to, for his personality to totally come out in his films. Do you see what I mean? You like to see it. I'm interested in how glinting. Through, I'm, I'm like, interested yeah. in how sensibility, if you like. I, I, I say I'm a bit suspicious of the word art, and I don't. I've used it more in the last uh, in the last twenty minutes than than in the previous twenty yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. But that's an exaggeration. But it's not a word I particularly use. But let me use the word sensibility. Yeah. I'm interested in how sensibility expresses itself in constrained circumstances. Yeah. Because, uh, truthfully, I think that actually is, is much more what the human condition is about than pure, unfettered self-expression. I perfectly respect unfettered self-expression, yeah. but I, I generally find it less interesting because it's less complex in some ways, actually, strangely enough. Mm. Does that make sense? I think it does. I can totally see where you're coming from. And I think that... I mean, I think there's some truth in what you're saying. I think I I like realism, yeah. But I guess I prefer it fiction based. But I yeah. I I do like non-fiction when it feels realistic as well. Yes. I think the best documentaries do that. And I think one of the things you're sort of talking about is self-expression as an artist, <laughs> which I feel a little bit uncomfortable saying myself. But as an artist, I I think my the thing I try to do is to lose my ego as much mm. as possible to mm. get rid of it. It may seem strange, especially mm. to people listening to my, my talk show. <laughs> but one of the things I try to do is, is get rid of that ego and, yeah. and, and it not be about self-expression, but to yeah. be about something else. And I think that's, that's kind of what you're talking about when you see people working under conditions where they can't fully express themselves. Yes. That's where the, the most interesting moments Yeah, it's happen. more interesting to see the bits of self-expression that seep out into the spaces that are left, if you mm. like, by that being in that confined space than it is to just see some a poet in a garret kind of just producing their poetry, saying exactly what they want to say. Yeah, to me. To no, me. I, 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 can, I completely see that. And, I mean, in a way, to me that sort of sounds like, slightly like um, psychogeography of cities, like yeah. when people look at how an area yes. grew from all of these different historic yes. moments yes. and how the beauty of that yes. building is not is not come from just the architect designing exactly. it. It's come from how the city exactly. is built it up. Exactly, exactly. You're yeah, sort of doing that with film. Good yeah. Metaphor, yeah. With, with documentary film. I mean, what's it like... Yeah, I, I guess, actually, I'll, I'll cover that first. So you wrote, a, you wrote a ch- an actual chapter about I did, in the book. I did, yes. And so, is that... To his embarrassment, I think. Yeah. So he claimed, anyway, but I, I think I believe him. I think... I think I he think enjoyed... I think he was flattered. He enjoyed... He, he enjoyed reading was embarrassed it, by it. But he was embarrassed by it as well. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I've, I've met a lot of filmmakers, and I would say your dad is probably one of the ones that I'm most comfortable about being entirely honest with him about, yeah. about the merits and demerits of his work. Yeah, I mean, that's that's an interesting relationship to have built up. And it's, I'm sure it's a useful one for both of you. I, I think Dad's very good at taking... Like, he craves the honest... He, cra- he craves honesty about yes. his work. And he generally takes it I think it's, it's interesting, because he, as you, as you know, and some of your listeners will know, he, he writes fiction. He does. I've got a few of his books here on the shelves, actually. Mm-hmm. And if you looked at his fiction without knowing anything about his film career you would absolutely think this is somebody about pure self-expression or at least like I would you know they're, they're very unfettered mm. sort of quite unconventional and not, not particularly conforming to any 
any particular mode or yeah. or or you know rules of the medium or whatever. I would say that's a fair. Yeah. So description. so whereas you look at most of his films and they're the vast majority of them. I mean, as I say, there's this small handful where I think his personality comes out a bit more. Mm-hmm. But even then, under quite severe constraints. But the vast majority of them are, are you know basically just pretty professional pieces of work done under professional circumstances. Yes. Yeah. And uh, that's sort of interesting. I, there are other filmmakers that I know, including some from his generation, who I would say were better at at sort of reconciling their, if you like, their interior mm. life, their inner life, to use that phrase we used before, with the work that they were doing. So if they were to write books, then I would probably see more of a similarity between their... More of, a, more of an overt similarity between the books that they've written and the films that they made. Yeah. Whereas in your dad's case, it, it's sort of it, it's interesting to me that he's he's completely sort of off the map in terms of his writing. Whereas his films, he obviously he obviously didn't have the facility to be able to impose himself on the circumstances that he was working in. Where of course you have to work with other people for other people mm-hmm. in such a way as to get more of himself into the films than he than other people might have been able to do you see what I mean yeah and hence why as I say the books are completely free works if you like films are, are not does that sorry does that make sense yeah no it makes it, it, it does make sense is that your cat or it, just a it cat it is okay. probably <laughs> it's always good for it to be the cat that's yours that's meowing rather than somebody else's cat no that does make sense absolutely so I mean I guess like is a lot of a lot of what you do is is about kind of viewing old films about finding I mean they're not it's not the only stuff that you do but you you have the surprisingly little of my working day is spent watching films exactly um, a, a, a typical working day has much more administration of course it. yeah um, but you do but, but anyway get, you do have those moments you're leading, you're leading on to a, a well, you, you have those moments yeah. where you're you're kind of looking through things that not very many people see yes kind of librarian yes, yes. kind of moment of like yes. the film you're viewing is something that not very many people have seen and you have to sort of make a judgement about that film what in terms of its bits. historical value yes. And, yes. and all these things right. and, yeah. and bring them across to the public yes part of me the romantic side of me maybe yeah. thinks of that as kind of quite a magical kind of idea of like yeah. you're seeing these things for the first time and yeah. uh what is it like to actually experience? Well, as I said, I have a romantic side, and so, um, yeah, I buy into that. But, but you know, the, the, the most of the day-to-day um, realities of my job are, are far from romantic yeah. and are pretty gritty and, and, you know, normal as well. The magic sort of descends on special occasions, really. Right. Usually, to be honest, not so much when I'm... It's not so much the act of seeing something, but when I see something that I, I really... That really catches my enthusiasm, and yeah, that can be magical. But also, sh- sharing things with people is sort of magical as well. Yeah. Sharing films to people. And, you know, especially if you feel that you've. your, your judgment about them has been, has been um, vindicated to some extent. Yeah. So I, I think there's a magic inherent in the work that my colleagues and I do. It, it's not sort of overt in the sense that it feels sort of. Magical. With You're used way. to it by now. I'm used to it. I mean, I've been in this business quite a while. So. Yeah. I mean, some people might think it's very magical to be turning up in people's houses with a with a um, microphone and 
yeah. doing them and putting a show out. Whereas right. when you're sitting there editing, it possibly it might be fun, but I'm not sure magical is necessarily the word you'd use. I, yeah, point. you're right and, and you're wrong. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right, but then it's boring, it's mundane and all that. But then you just have that, that moment yeah. where you, you, you catch a glimpse of the magic or you, yeah. you can sense the magic. Well, you have to be, to, to have done this 72 times or however many times you've done it, you yeah. have to be driven to some extent. You do. And I'm, by nature, to some extent, quite a driven personality, yeah. I think. Is there an element of what you do that's librarian, like, like is it cataloguing stuff? or is Yeah, there... yeah, there is. Cataloguing, answering inquiry. Obviously, because we're acquiring material, there's all sorts of things to do with signing donor agreements and negotiating yeah. those and so on. You know, of course, there's a, a bureaucratic aspect as well yeah. to working somewhere like the BFI. That's no surprise. Yeah, of course. And and so, I mean... So, yeah, very. as I say, I mean, it's not it, the job does not consist of sitting sitting down watching films all day. No, no, no. I, 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 but no more fact, than being a library assistant involves sitting there reading a magazine and drinking coffee. Quite, quite. I know, I know however, I, I do, however, you know, to get, to reinforce the point that we made earlier, mm. I, I'm very much aware that, that the job that I do is unusual and is, and that I'm very lucky to have it. Yeah, sure. And there is a, there is a, an inherent magic in it, if you like. A magic yeah. that's sort of, um, how do you feel? How do you find cataloguing as someone who's worked in libraries? Like I recognise it needs to be yeah, done, yeah. and the order needs to be there. But I don't have a naturally well, very ordered I've mind. Felt, I've always felt, and I think you know the the, the the history of film archives sort of bears this out. There's a few people who've written histories of the the, the profession mm. that there are two on the whole two different personality types who tend to sort of gravitate towards it one is if you like the archivist or librarian sort of personality type who's very much who has a to use that word again passion for detail and accuracy yeah. and completion and so on the other is more the curator personality type I mean I'm in the second category anyway. so you're, I'm much so more of a curator type I, 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 I it's not that I necessarily I, I certainly agree about the importance of those other tasks and and actually, you know, if I, I've always wanted to try and marry the two, really, yeah. I've always felt that the best sort of archiving is about marrying the two, so that so that you know, because so that there's an, an outcome from the cataloging, yeah. but also that there is a that there is the 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 the, the, the basis of, of any sort of more extroverted sort of work that you do there yeah. that has a long term legacy. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So I've always wanted to marry the two, but in terms of my my own personality type my own sensibility to use that, that yeah. phrase again I, I do I am slightly more biased towards the the well I'm by nature as I said quite driven not particularly patient right I have quite a short attention span so I'm very sort of curious and sort of easily stimulated I suppose yeah. and and like to do stuff proactive and all that kind of thing yeah in a work setting yeah not necessarily in every setting <laughs> so so therefore yeah, I'm not. I'm not the particularly the kind of backroom type archivist in terms of my personal bias. Yeah. Even though I do that kind of work, and I think it's very important. I mean, I'm at, I'm at a manager level in the organisation, yeah. so I'm obviously to some extent removed from some of the um, cataloging stuff. Yeah. Not from the cataloging necessarily, but 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 I, I I do less of the the sort of hands-on stuff than some right. colleagues who report to me but I like I mean I certainly like to keep my hand in in that kind of thing absolutely yeah. but I am 
as I say, more more the curator type than the archivist type, if you like. Yeah. Uh, everyone has a mixture, I think, who's in this profession, and it's good to have a mixture in, in any archive. Well, curation is sort of now. about exploring yeah. how it's presented, isn't it? And like how you... It's both, actually. It is, I think it's, it's just as much about managing your collection in such a way that it's presentable. Ah, it's really interesting. Yeah. So, I, yeah, this word curator does actually have... It's slightly ambiguous. Um, I mean, in a museum context, sometimes a curator means somebody who puts on exhibitions. Yeah. Sometimes it means somebody who looks after a particular collection. Yeah. Um, in the BFI context, a, a curator at the archive... Their prime responsibility, in fact, is towards the collection, but the, the public-facing side of what they do is is considered to be an essential um, aspect of managing the collection. Mm. And you know, I've always felt if you're if you're doing the work of acquiring, cataloguing, answering inquiries, etc., that in itself causes you to build up a lot of knowledge, mm. which you should then apply to. The more public-facing things, equally the more public-facing things that you do, that sort of extends your knowledge further, and, yeah, sure. and should then be applied back to managing the collection. That's yeah, the theory. Sure. That's of course, really good of course, in practice, it's it's a much more complex thing that's carried out in very sort of messy, practical, under-resourced circumstances. Sure. But that's the theory, and and I think I think if you continue to have that theory in mind, you'll make more progress than if you don't. No, no, fair enough. And it's interesting to me you said that you have a short attention span and yet one of the things that you do have to do at least sometimes yes. in the job, not daily, yes. is to watch kind of old films which I find to be very out of sync yes. with my attention span. Yes, that's perhaps, it's not perhaps that kind of thing that I was referring to when I said okay. short attention span. Partly that's a matter of taste. I mean, yeah. I like older films. Yeah. So... So, you know, that's not a problem to me. I mean, the thing that's a problem to me is things that I don't like. No, <laughs> you no, see no, what I mean? So, you, yeah, yeah. so I like them. So when I say I've got a short attention span, I, I think what I just mean is that I don't like to stick with any one thing for too long. Yeah, no, I, I got I, what you I, meant I, in the context. I just think it's interesting. On the go. Yeah, but, the, but things that I'm... Things that I'm... I'm going to have to use that awful word again. Passion. <laughs> I can get totally absorbed in and stick with for a very long time. Yeah. But I'm quite... Yeah. Sorry, I didn't answer that question very No, well, I think you did. I think it's an interesting quality to have where I can see that you're, you know, you're, you're someone who wants to actively do things in a certain kind of mindset, but then yeah. when you sit down and you watch an old film, yeah. I guess that, that switches a different Yeah, you're switch. in a different zone, I suppose. You know, and that's yeah. a, that's yeah. a, that, that seems completely... Yeah. Those two things being together in one person makes sense to Yeah. Me. Most people are, have these different... Yeah, 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 types, absolutely. As you discovered, seven yeah, to two yeah. times. Yes, Absolutely, but it is interesting. Yeah, you do learn so many things from people about people and about yourself when you do this sort of a thing. The last question that I ask people is, "Do you have anything that you want to plug?" Which is has become a very strange question because some people have things to plug, and some people decided to take it to mean promote, and so got more general about what, what they would like to promote. Um, and other people are very specific and so I feel obliged to, to indicate to people that this has become a much more complicated answer than they were giving before because I want everyone to have a similar chance to answer it but yeah do you have anything that you wish to plug? Mm -hmm. That's the most difficult question you've asked so far it's I, certainly, I certainly won't I won't take the opportunity to plug anything work related because I have other more appropriate outlets to do that Yeah. so I suppose I should 
try to promote some sort of idea or concept instead. Yeah, you can. But I don't know what that should be. Oh, it's a hard one. Um, well, okay. Just this is just this is. I mean, if I thought about this, I would come up with something much better. So, just from the top of my head, I think the year after next, nineteen fourteen, obviously will be the centenary of the First World War. And I, I'm, I'm so curious. Two thousand and fourteen. Yeah, two thousand and fourteen will be the. It will mark one hundred years since the First World War broke out. Uh, I've always felt that the First World War in terms of the society that you and I are part of, which is that of the British Isles, yeah. has huge cultural and psychological and historical importance and, and reverberations that have only really, I think, faded out recently in the sense that you know, an entire generation was very deeply affected yeah. by that war. I mean, society itself was changed by it, but individuals were changed by it. One of my grandfathers fought in the First World War. <clears throat> he was a Dubliner, in fact. There were a lot of Irishmen who, this is often forgotten, a lot of Irishmen fought for Britain in, in World War One. Right. Of course, our, our Southern Ireland had not become independent at, until at that, when the war broke, broke out. Anyway, that's a side issue. Uh, the point is that, the, that individuals like him and many others were obviously those who had actually fought were very much affected by that experience and some of them traumatised many of whom never talked about it at all to their nearest and dearest and I think that those psychological effects on individuals usually played out to a lesser extent in their children so that would be my father's generation mm -hmm. uh, and the generation before him and then I think there was a sort of ripple effect in my generation and I think it's only really kids who are being born now my kids' generation the, the sort of the ripples have finally gone if you like okay. it's taken a, basically a hundred yeah. years for the, the trauma of the First World War to work its way out of our society fully and there's a, there's a sort of ma macro level to all this in terms of, you know, the, the depression and, and, you know, how the structure of society was, came into question because of the war and then, you know, the causes of the Second World War, which then caused society to be yeah. reconstituted after the Second World War, blah, 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 all that stuff, which I'm very interested in as well. But also, as I say, on the personal, individual level, I, I think in the First World War had an effect on the individual psychologies of many, many people living today, although nobody now is alive today who actually fought in the First World War. I mm. think the last veterans died a couple of years ago. I think so. They're very, very old men. Mm. And sometimes I think about the fact that when I was a kid, there must have been absolutely loads of, in the same way that now, you know, there's still plenty of guys around, including your dad, actually, yeah, indeed. who fought in World War Two. Yeah. You know, my children one day will look back on this period now and think, God, you know, there were loads of guys around around us who fought in World War II and I didn't appreciate it then so yeah. when I was a kid in the 70s there would have been a lot of First World War veterans still around anyway my point is to get back to what I'm plugging and plug is probably not quite the right word in the context I suppose it's just as we come up to the centenary of the First World War I, I'm, I'm plugging or promoting or, or really just positing or suggesting the concept that that was a war that had a truly profound effect on our society at the macro level and at the individual level and so the the centenary of the First World War 
which is the first major anniversary of the war, which will take place after the deaths of, of everyone directly involved, right. um, is an opportunity for us as a society to kind of really quite rigorously look at that history and judge its effects. Okay. That's, <laughs> I don't know why I came up with that one. No, I think that's really interesting. It, was a, it just popped into my mind well, for some I, reason. I'm glad it did. It was very interesting. And, uh, I mean, I never know what's going to happen when I ask people if they have anything to plug. And half the time, you know, they just give me, give me something very practical of what they actually want to promote. And a lot of the time they seem to say no or not really or something like that but the best times are when people go off and say something that I wasn't expecting at all and I really I wasn't expecting that <laughs> no 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 I mean this is the thing but I thought it was very I mean I think it's very true the effects of the first world war were immense and my generation perhaps focused too much in terms of school you know on the second world well, war because they too. were around yeah, and eat more easily well I think one of the reasons why I'm going to now promote another concept before, <laughs> before you fine. switch off. I think one of the reasons why the Second World War is, is to, in an almost monolithic, almost oppressive way, such a massive constant in British culture mm-hmm. is that it's, it's British society's way of displacing, number one, the horrors of the First World War, which was, you know, which some historians would disagree with this, but the, the, the kind of popular memory of it is that it was a futile... War. Yeah. Um, so the idea that the Second World War was not futile, that it was a just war, and that it was a a, uh, a war worth fighting given the circumstances, mm-hmm. it's a way of just you know, it's a way, of, a natural way of somehow psychologically writing that role or rebalancing that equation. I also think it's at least as much. This is the other concept that maybe I'll plug, as it were, that the Second World War is at least as much our way of displacing guilt over the empire okay because it was actually if you look at you know 200 years of British history prior to that it was a history in terms of our engagement with I say our you know not you and I weren't alive at the time yeah. the British states and British society's engagement with with the world outside was predominantly invading other countries yes yeah, you're right Britain spent 200 or more years um, invading other countries and nicking all their stuff Basically, yeah. uh, you know, it's much more complex than that, and yeah. historians have all sorts of disagreements. But that Absolutely. is what—that's what—that's what an empire is. And so, actually, the Second World War is was was both the last and the first, in some ways, war in which Britain was absolutely, unambiguously, clearly, morally in the right. Mm. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why. And and and, and I think genuinely, your father's generation. Um, I don't know what he would say about this, but I think, as a generation, genuinely, I think they heroically fought that war. It's a, it's a, it's a, yeah. it's a, it's yeah. a kind of an overstatement, but as overstatements go, I think it's true. I think so. I think there was genuine heroism in that generation. But as I say, that was six years of national history, which followed two hundred or more years of, of, as I said, at the very least, a less black and white and more grey. Yeah. At the very least. So I think I, th- I do think. You know, the, in terms of the Second World War, that as I say, it was the, this national obsession with the Second World War. We get to say we're the good guys. We get to say we're the good guys, yeah. and and we actually try to use that to convince ourselves that we are always the good guys. Yeah. That we are that we are the guys in the white hats, basically. And actually, most of the time, we we 
quote unquote were not. No. Um, and, and so that's that's a slightly that's a that's a second, perhaps slightly more provocative concept to promote. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's I think both those ideas. Fair. I, I wonder sometimes whether there were ever anybody that were that the guys in White House. You know. No, I mean that's the that's the shocking thing about history. history you know? Yeah, absolutely, and you know probably. Well, I mean, you know, we we live in a Western society, which is you know both you and I. Mm-hmm. We're not sort of probably particularly rich people by the sort of standards of some of the people living up there. No, by the but standards of history. By the standards of history are... and by the standards of the conditions of most people who live in the present in day. In the present day, absolutely. Absolute. We are extraordinarily privileged. And most of us, myself included, don't think very much about that fact other than a slightly vague sense of guilt. We don't actually do very much about it. Absolutely. I mean, I give money to charity. But, you know, that's what you're day to day. So. So, yeah. Anyway, we're getting well, into really, really deep yeah. stuff here. We probably ought to stop. Before, well, absolutely. Before it, before, I mean, it, before it kind of gets out. Well, well. Yeah. Well, I don't know where it's going to go next, so I'm always excited. Uh, to, but you're absolutely right. It is time to wrap it up. So the last thing that I ask people to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Goodbye. <laughs> goodbye, everybody. find getting better acquainted on twitter at gba podcast you can find it on facebook it's getting better acquainted have a search on facebook and like it or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk you can also subscribe by searching on itunes and subscribing to us that way and on the stitcher smart radio app you can download for your smartphone from stitcher.com or through the app store there are lots of ways to get better acquainted